Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling, where I get to talk to incredible creatives about the small moments in their lives that changed everything. My name is Steve Anderson, and today I'm talking to one of my favourite singers in the world, pop star, one-fifth of steps, and pom-pom enthusiast, Claire Richards. <laughs> How are we? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, you love, love a pom-pom? I do love a pom-pom, I'm not going to lie. And you know how much I love a pom-pom because it's my my happy place when I'm making it is a, It is a therapy though, isn't it? Wouldn't you describe it as a therapy? Um, in a yeah, way? I think it probably is. Uh, you can always tell when I'm a little bit near the edge is you say, what am I doing? I'm making pom-poms. And it does kind of generally, it makes me focus my brain just on making pom-poms instead of everything else. So it probably is actually. It's, it's your version of mindfulness. I've always said it. It's, yeah. you know, like a meditation, really. You just yeah. can get to a quiet space and just concentrate on that one little thing. Yeah. And you get something pretty at the end. Sometimes quite a few of them. Yeah. And I am a little bit obsessive when it comes to the trimming of the pom-pom as well. Well, this is true. And I think we'll get into this a bit later, but I think perfectionism is is something that comes quite naturally to you. You are a bit of a perfectionist. Or you'd like yeah. to try and be a perfectionist. Yeah, if that's what you call it. Or yeah. No, but you're, you're 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 it's good. You're like me. You have that you like those intricate little details of making sure everything's just right. Yeah. But some it's the hindrance sometimes, isn't it? Because then, you know, there's no such thing as perfect. But there is such thing as a perfect pom-pom, let's be honest. Oh, yes. And I have made it. <laughs> many, many More times. More than once. Many, yeah. many times. So Claire's talking to us from her little home studio, which got set up last year. Lots, lots of... Uh, your help. Lots Thank of pop, you. That's all right. Lots of pop stars were doing the whole sort of singing from home. It's come in very handy. Yeah. Um, this... Uh, podcast is all about those little moments that kind of make you remember um, how you got to be where you are today. Um, mm. And I like to start off with saying, growing up, before you were even buying music, what's the soundtrack of, of, of the house that you grew up in? What's What records, what songs are on the stereo when you're growing up? Do you know what? I don't actually remember a house full of music growing up. I, my very earliest memory of any kind of music that I listened to because my parents were with the, was the police. Cause, and, and I must've been so young, actually. I don't mm. even know how or why I remember this, but there was a lady that my dad worked with and it was when people used to bite a cassette and then tape it and, you know, copy it basically for somebody else. Mm. And she'd copied the police album for my dad. He always says it was for me, but I can't have been because I was probably about two or something. Her name was Sheila. I don't even know how I remember that either. And um, and I was just obsessed with with Roxanne and Message in a Bottle. Mm. And they were the only the two and all the only lyrics I knew and could say and sing from those two songs was literally Roxanne and Message in a Bottle. And I would go around the house going, Message in a bottle, <laughs> Message in a bottle. And that was it. And that was so that is my kind of I think that is my earliest, earliest memory of of music and singing, if you can call it that. So then growing up when you're getting into kind of just when you're getting into junior school and stuff like that, who are your what 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 are you then getting into? Is that stuff you're obviously you're hearing stuff on the radio? Do you remember some of those early pop stars or songs or even and tracks that you were starting to get into then? I think so. I was I remember being in really into the whole PWL thing. So Sunita and I was obsessed with Rick Astley. I had a poster of him next to my bed. 
Brilliant. Um, yeah, which was quite awkward and years <laughs> later when I met him. No, no, it, it's not a lot. It's, it's a story he's been told a few times by a few people. I Don't bet, worry. I bet. <laughs> um, and yeah, and things like I remember getting, I think it was just 17 magazine gave away, you know, and they used to kind of print one side of a record on a piece of really flimsy. Oh, yeah, flexi disc. Like, flexi disc. And mm. it was the Jets crush on you. <gasps> what a tune. And I, I was obsessed with that. And I had a really old record player, you know, the, the ones that with the lid and you could mm. carry it around, had one mm. of those. And I used to just play, and I was so excited because it was free for a start. Yeah. And I used to just listen to it over and over again. That's amazing. What else was in your little vinyl collection around then? I think I'm, I'm kind of getting to probably nearly secondary school now because okay. I don't my mum and dad had records oh I, I tell you the first record I probably did have it was now one Legendary. I remember that and it melted in the in um, in the greenhouse when my mum and dad had oh, a party no. <laughs> <laughs> they left it outside they left all the records outside and they were melted mm. and that was and that had um sister sledge um Frankie on it it had new edition um mm. It had, oh, yeah, that was, the, so I think that is the first real record that I remember playing and having and just playing that over again. And I was obsessed with Frankie. I used to do a little dance routine in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Voluntarily. <laughs> I'm forced to do them now. It's quite hard. I sometimes say when I'm doing this, it's quite hard for people to appreciate now with obviously everything being available everywhere on streaming. Mm. But those now, that's what I call music albums. They were just, and gold dust because it was yeah. all of the hits on one record. Yeah. And it, imagine, so that would have been, it was, it was now one, one I remember. Yeah. And it was a double vinyl as well. Mm. So it opened out. I mean, it must've mm. been my mum and dad's, Yeah, but it was just the best thing. And it, every, you know, there was a picture of every single, I had hit six as well. That was another record that I, I don't know, I remember it's hit six. And that had even Bruce Willis was on that. I think under the boardwalk, under the boardwalk. Elkie Brooks. Yeah. Um, cutting crew, the people like that were all on that album. I absolutely loved it. It was brilliant. So did you, from your slightly charming slash annoying singing the, for the police mm. when you were younger, what was, were you continually singing around the house? I mean, what's your early memories of actually just singing? Was it just singing along with the radio or? Probably I do. Um, I used to put on little shows for my mum and dad, and but it was all musical theatre. Ah. That's what I sang. And I used to get, I had a a desk in my room, like a proper school desk, mm. but a kiddie one. And the stool that went with it, I used to take that into the living room. I used to plonk it in front of my mum and dad and go, right, I'm doing a show. Which, the way I look at myself now is really quite surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> because as as I got older and the more aware I was maybe of people actually wanted to listen to me singing I would hide mm. I, I would then kind of see people would say will you sing and I would but I would stand behind the curtains or sit behind the sofa so no one could see me okay that makes total sense to me now yeah. yes that's my I, that would be very comfortable for me but then I used to plonk it down and we had a dressing up box of clothes and I would do a costume change for every song and there was only I probably only had about five songs in my repertoire that was it was Feed the Birds from Mary Poppins Tomorrow from Annie also maybe from Annie and Somewhere Over the Rainbow 
I think that might have been it. That's a that's a good set of songs. Yeah, I even had a dress with a rainbow on, and that would be the one I wore for. Of course, somewhere you did. Over the rainbow. <laughs> Again, nothing's changed. <laughs> Thank God you ended up doing what you did for a living. <laughs> It's, it's all right there in that last sentence. Yeah, it probably wouldn't have gone down quite the same on the reception of Burger King, would it? No, not so much. Which, is, <laughs> which was where you went up. Which was so, my other option. Yeah. So you, <laughs> so you're doing the, so obviously doing the little shows. I mean, what about performing actually in public? Did you do anything at school? Did you do an assembly? Did you nothing? No. Not at that age. No. Not when so I was. The only first... the ones we were forced to do as the whole kind of class. The whole thing, not as a side of thing. So do you remember the first time you performed in front of an audience of any kind? Um, So when I went to secondary school, we, I've probably told this story a million times, but we had to do, in they call it year seven now, but it was the first year when I was at school, secondary school. At the end of each year, we all had to do exams and music was no different because that was a subject everybody did at that point. And we had to do, a a practical as well as the written exam and if you didn't play an instrument you had to sing regardless of whether you could sing or not so by this point I had become obsessed with the carpenters so I had my little score music book of carpenter songs and I chose a carpenter song so I had to sing to, that was the first time I sang to anybody that wasn't my parents, I guess, was to my music teacher. And then a f- couple of weeks after we did those exams, he stopped me in the corridor and said, you know, you've got a really good voice. You, you're singing in assembly next week. And again, because I think I am the way I am. He was a teacher. He told me I had to do something and I did it. I didn't say no. I didn't protest. I just went, oh, oh OK. And um yeah, and then I sang in assembly to half the school, which was the, all the lower school, so the kind of year one, two, and three. And that was the, that was the first time I, I kind of went from one or two people in a room to 600. And that was a Carpenter's song that you sang? Yeah. Which one? Goodbye to Love. Which is an interesting choice, considering, you know, for someone of your age then, mm. that would be quite an old-fashioned choice when everyone else was into pop music. Yeah, and I, d- I think it was because I'd, I had watched this Carpenter's TV movie, which is pretty much the only thing I can ever remember that's been made about them that was like a type of, it was a biopic, I suppose. And it was people playing the parts of Karen and Richard and everybody. And I just, not just the music I became obsessed with, but just the story, her story and that, just the whole thing. And, And I don't remember listening to much else for a good couple of years after I saw that film and I just wanted to sing like her and I had never actually thought about the way I sang before I'd listened to her and just something just switched in my head and that was just it forever and I think I chose that one because some of the others which were maybe more favorites is it was they were too low for me I couldn't hit those lower notes. Because I was going to say that, actually, that, you know, it's, an, again, an interesting choice for someone of that age because it is, a, a you know, it is a low, rich tone, mm. um, which, again, is uh, bizarre for someone that spends most of their life these days up in the rafters. In the clouds, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would imagine that that would be a, there would be a quite a incredible reaction to you singing that. that I wouldn't imagine anybody else 
in that show when you were at school would have sounded like that. That must have caused. A, I mean, do you remember people coming up to you and sort of saying how good it was or how different? I don't. It was? I'm not sure. I don't think because I don't think many people would have known the song at all. Right. And people did perform in assemblies now and again, and it was normally someone in with an instrument. There wasn't many people that sang. Mm. And it was just, it was obviously just to fill the mm. assembly that we had to have every single day. Mm. So, but I didn't know, people did come up to me and say it was good, I'm sure. But it also was then the spark of the other side of it for me, where it was, you know, I kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily bullying to the fullest extent, but I got a lot of flack for it more than anything, I think. Right. Because how dare I? think that I could possibly entertain people or sing well enough in, in assembly at school. And I, but I was literally doing what the teacher told me to do. Yeah. It's not like I, you know, went and begged him to let me sing in assembly, but that was how I was made to feel. And did that stop, did that have an effect on you not wanting to do it again? Is that what got you behind the curtain, as you said? No, I don't think, I just, I'm, I love singing and it is my, it is my, passion and I do absolutely love it more than anything but I was always nervous and I don't I, but I think I've always had that fear of being judged over anything else and I think that's probably what made me so nervous and then I guess if when I was proved right because kids especially at that age they're more likely to be mean than to be nice so maybe somewhere along the line it was I, I never got over those nerves because I was never really made to feel as though I'd, I'd done well or it was good and it was a good thing to do. It was because it's always the negative comments, isn't it, that stick in your mm. mind. And it's always the person that's going, oh, why did you do that? Oh, you think you're so good. And it's those things that, that I think I've, that's they're the things that I've carried with me rather than, you know, all the teachers and everybody else saying how good it was. <laughs> And did you have pop stars or female role models that were on the telly when you were watching some of the pops or whatever that you kind of thought, oh, I'd love to be them one day? I or think, it, yeah. Oh, you're still just listening to The Carpenters? No, I think eventually I then started to listen to people like Whitney and mm. Celine Dion. And I was never really a big Mariah Carey fan. It was always Whitney Houston and Celine Dion for me. And, and, and I wanted to be that kind of singer. I don't think I ever thought I wanted to be a pop star, even though that's the label that you, you're given in mm. that world across the board, I suppose. But I just wanted to be a singer that stood there and sung amazing songs rather than kind of dance around the stage. <laughs> Again. <laughs> it gets more curious. So take, take me from, from then to auditioning for a girl band. I, so... I stayed at school, I did my GCSEs and I did my A-levels and it came to the point where I should have been applying to university and at one point I thought I was going to go and train to be a PE teacher. Don't quite like to PE at school, but it took me away from the academic side, I suppose. And then I just decided, when I finished my GCSEs, I decided that I was just going to take a year out and see what happened, you know, see if I could I didn't want to go to stage school or any kind of performing arts school at all even though my mum did offer a few times to to find somewhere for me so I, I left school in the June 
I was still only 17 because my birthday's in August. So I was always the youngest. So everybody else had already turned 18. And I, I'd been doing karaoke in our local pub for years as well, just before that. And I'd met various people through it. And one Saturday night, I was invited to a birthday party for somebody. And, and there was someone else there who ended up being our agent for years. And, um, he said, Oh, I'm working with this new record company. They're putting together a girl band. Do you want to, are you interested? And I was like, I'd literally just left school. I said, yeah, of course. Yeah. So he said, okay, I'll give, I'll give you a ring on Monday on the landline. Cause there's no mobiles then. And, um, and we'll get you in. And I thought, I'm never, he's never going to ring me. But he did on the, that Monday, he rang me. He said, can you get up to Soho Square um, this afternoon and go to, the record company was called Avex, which was, it was a uh, German, Japanese label, but they were trying to start up here. Mm. So they had signed, I think they'd signed 911 before mm. they got signed which was because I remember having a conversation with Jimmy on the phone once, which is a bit weird at the record label. And, um, I went there, I sat down with the, the MD or the guy who was running the label, a bloke called Phil France, who actually used to work at PWL years ago. And we, um, my mum came with me. <laughs> I was 17. Yeah. yeah, I'd never been to London Good. by myself, yeah. I don't think, by then. So my mum came with me and we sat there and we were chatting for ages and he was telling me about the other two girls. And and at the end of it, he went, so do you want to be in it then? And I went, um, oh. yeah, okay. Uh, that was it. So, so no I never audition. actually, no, I never actually auditioned. So I said, well, well, yeah, of course I do. I mean, I'd love to. And he said, right, okay, the only thing you do have to do is go... The producer was this guy called Boris. He said, there's a studio in Fulham Broadway. If you can go there now and lay down some vocals on, and I'd never, I, in fact, I'd been in a recording studio once, but it was to do a demo tape that I'd won in a karaoke <laughs> competition. And what was that? And what did you record on the demo tape? For my demo, yeah. um, Evergreen. Of course. By Barbara Streisand. And... I think it was I Will Always Love You. Of course. Do you have think, do you still have a copy of it? Probably somewhere. Okay. Good. Carry on. Oh, God. <laughs> My mum will have yeah. one for sure. Um, yeah, so that was it. And then uh, so I and I went from Soho Square to Fulham Broadway to a studio that was like underneath the station somewhere. And um listened to the song a few times, went in the vocal booth, sang it, and he's told me to stop singing like Julie Andrews. <laughs> Because I was is, very posh. Then. Okay, that's quite hard to believe. What I mean, just you mean your diction was quite. Yes, my mean? diction it was, was like more musical theatre sort of. Diction. Yeah, I guess so. Because even though I did listen to a lot of pop music, I suppose, and actually, I probably was a bit more well spoken then. Mm. I've dropped a lot <laughs> since. I do have phases where I'm a bit better than, and I wouldn't say posh. Just not, you know, I'm not from yeah. London really. I'm the suburbs, so. But he told me, he said, if you want to be a pop singer, you're going to have to rough your voice up a bit. Okay. So that's kind of what I did, I suppose. But I, I think, and I haven't listened to that song for years. It's very, very tracked up. It wasn't, 
it wasn't very clearly me and two other girls. We were so layered that you can't really tell who it is mm. anyway. Mm. Um, and it was very dancey. So, and that was basically it. And I signed the record deal on my 18th birthday. Wow. And this was the legend that was TSD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, but legendary I mean you achieved a number 64 hit Woo! with Baby I Love You which is you know not to be sniffed well that at. was the second single I don't know what that, 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 Heart, I know and that. Heart and Soul yeah 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 That's the first I think one. that went a bit higher I oh, did it okay. I think I don't know Baby I Love You Tony Blackburn was in our video there you go which was huge just saying at the time and you know how was that I mean for someone that you said you didn't want to be a pop star, you're a bit uncomfortable about, you know, you're there in a girl band making a pop video. That must have, there must have been a part of that that was fun, right? Yeah. I mean, it was all so new then. So it was, it was so exciting and it was so, mm. I don't know, it's like one minute I wasn't in a pop group and the next minute I was. And then we, the guy who managed us, he was also an agent. So we got on pretty much every theatre tour going that year mm. it only lasted about a year and you know when Ant and Deck were still PJ and Duncan and doing their touring mm. stuff we did two tours with them we supported Boyzone we did the Smash Hits tour and with it you know people like Louise was was on that and MN8 and the Out Here Brothers that's and amazing Peter though. Andre and but for know. experience like you couldn't buy a better experience into that oh no on, being- it was definitely definitely my training I Mm. would say because Mm. when when I did eventually get into steps which wasn't that much long after because I was the youngest I was always looked upon as a little bit like I suppose a bit I didn't really know what I was doing or what I was talking about but I had the experience of already being in a pop band already having a record deal already having been dropped from my record deal so I had that experience that nobody else had had so that was kind of what I brought to the table a little bit, I think. Were you particularly heartbroken when TSD were no more? Um, because at the time it was, the dream must have been that this is going to be huge. Yeah, I, th- I was because I remember the phone call and I he just said, they're just not renewing your contract. And I, yeah, I was devastated. It was really horrible. It was really hard to to kind of see, have all of that all of a sudden. And we weren't successful at all. I mean, we just toured a lot and I loved that kind of being on the road and being on stage. And I did meet a lot of people that then became part of the Steps world as well. So it's that I knew people in the business already. So that was helpful for me. Um, Yeah. And then I kind of moped around for a while and then I got a job in a spa reception. Good. which was um which I hated and then I started temping reception work and I was just I was miserable I was so miserable and my mum said to me right come on that's it stop moping about you know what you want to do so she we started buying the stage every week and just sending off every audition that popped up I'd already missed the Spice Girls one damn really <laughs> literally <laughs> and I must have still been in TSD so I and it was just so I was in so TSD was 95 to 96 and then from like the summer of 96 to May 97 I wasn't 
doing anything in the music industry. And then mm. May 97 was the Steps audition. And the only one that called me back from God knows how many tapes I sent off. It was the wow. only only audition that I actually was asked to go to. <laughs> and when you say you sent tapes off, what were on the tapes? The the de- the, the, ever- the yeah the demo green and I were yeah. a brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so that and came I in think- handy. Yeah, it, yeah, definitely did in the end. I don't know if I'd bothered putting. No, I didn't put TSD songs on there. Didn't bother. No, because I, I think I didn't want people to, to. Oh no, that's not true. Because I put the TSD, you know, the promotional cards yeah, you used yeah. to have back then. I put that in the envelope with it. But what's great about that is you won a competition to have a day in a studio to do two demos that ended up being the demos that effectively got you into steps. Yeah, that's not bad. No, I know. It's definitely worth it. <laughs> I mean, obviously it wasn't as well because obviously you did the Steps audition and they did require you to sing. Yes, and dance. And dance. And dance first as well, which I almost had a little panic at and I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to get through to the singing bit. I might just ask them to, if I can <laughs> sing first. But luckily it was line dancing. So in the grand scheme of kind of the, the dance world, line dance, you know, you've only got to go left and you've only got to go right and maybe forward and backwards. It's kind mm. of, it was easier. So yeah. I scraped through that and, yeah, got to do the the singing audition. <laughs> Which, rather than giving yourself an easy life, you chose River Deep Mountain High. Yeah. And I don't, to this day, I just don't know why. Because it's... Uh, like I've said before, it's not a song that I'd ever sung. I'd listened to it a million times because I loved, and it was Celine's version of it. Mm-hmm. And the night before, I I think I was going to sing I Will Always Love You, but I think the night before I just thought, oh, no, I shouldn't sing that. Everybody sings that. I should pick something different, maybe do something a bit more up-tempo. And, and I picked that and kind of learnt it as best I could pretty much the night before and I just I still don't know why I chose that song I just don't I mean I'm glad I did because I'm hoping it's what got me the job but um and I've sung it since as you know and it's brilliant I love it it's it's like you know it gets everybody and weirdly it's not an easy song but weirdly for you it is kind of a reasonably easy song because it does fit so well in your range yeah it's kind of there's definitely a a sweet spot I think in yeah. my range that is just comfortable even though it sounds like it's up there and it would be really taxing and and not easy but it just as if I if I get that point where it's it just is comfortable and I don't want to say easy because no no but you find it no that's that's it mm. is it to you it's easier like it's not a, yeah it's not a stretch and there must have come a point where you're at some point when you're used to singing all the Carpenter stuff and the low range stuff, there must have come a point where you just been happened to be singing along to Whitney or Celine or someone mm. and you discovered this high belt. Yeah. And I, well, I didn't know that. You didn't know what it was, was. but you must yeah. have just gone, oh, because the one thing about Karen is obviously she's my one of my favorite singers as well, but it's a beautiful noise, but it has a range to it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, at some point, you must have been singing along and going, oh, hang on. There's a whole other yeah, bit to yeah. this. I think it probably was when I started singing to the Whitney and the Celine stuff. I Because my bedroom was in the loft at home and it was quite hot up there in the summer. So I'd always have my windows wide open. Mm. And 
and I would just sing at the top of my voice. And I think I realized that I could. And again, I don't think I quite knew what I was doing and what I was managing to achieve along with Whitney Houston. And I just, it just happened and I could just do it. And there were many times when I would hear a little round of applause from the street because the neighbours were well, I think singing to Whitney, I mean, I always say that I, like some sort of doctor, I prescribe Whitney mm. to singers as to say, you know, listen to her, yeah, just sing along with her. It will teach you everything really you need to know mm. um, because it has an, a, an intensity, but it also has an honesty about it. And even though she can do really tricky things, she very often doesn't. She just... Yeah hits the notes yeah it's it's that kind of I don't know you hear so many people now it's all about the gymnastics of and making it sound impressive because you can hit 20 Mm. notes on the way down or something which I have never really tried to do Mm. and can't I, I mean I just I I prefer it to sound much purer I suppose if that's mm. the way to say um mm. And I definitely, through those three singers, especially, I, through listening to them and just trying to emulate how they sing, that's what has developed the way I sing, I think. But if you had to create a kind of perfect recipe for a female voice, and it was the richness of Karen Mm. with the sort of mid-range of Whitney and the belt of Celine, that surely is, that's the one you want, isn't it? absolutely <laughs> it's a good it's a good it's recipe a good, yeah and I think and all three of those women as well I think this is really important and a lot of people don't really have they can sing and technically it, they're perfect but to make you believe every single word that that comes yeah. out of their mouths is the trick and the key for me especially Karen Carpenter because I this is quite sad, but as a teenager, I would listen to it. And I remember just sitting in my room crying because I was listening to Carpenter songs and it just the emotion that she brings out of her own vocal and it's effortless. Mm. It's not like she's trying. Sometimes I listen to singers now and I think they're trying so hard to make themselves sound sincere and it's just, and it's not. Mm. And she... I don't know what it is. It's she has the ability. Even now, I still listen. If I don't listen to her for a while, and there are certain songs I put on, and by the end of it, I'm a mess because I can just. I don't know if the story's playing in my mind at the same time, but I just believe every single word that she sings, and that's quite a rare um, quality, I think. So you've done Riverdale at Mountain High. Who's 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 judging you in this? By the way, obviously the Tim, the managers there is. is yeah. Or anyone musically in this audition? No. So there was Tim Byrne, who was our manager. Um, there was a guy called Barry Upton, who oh, who did five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, and yes. Steve Crosby. So yes. they they wrote five, six, seven, eight. Um, yeah. Barry had been in Brotherhood of Man at some point. Yes. Not not the original lineup. But. So the vision for Steps initially was we were just meant to be a line dancing act a line dancing band that sang songs all about line dance you know country so kind all of, of world. The songs, there would have been like five versions of five six seven eight basically, basically. yeah there was yeah. one called stomping that we did record um there was what was the other one words of wisdom which a bit more of a ballad which we did end up actually recording for a b-side i think yeah um 
so they were at the audition. So it wasn't until afterwards when we went to try and get a deal that we met Pete and Pete Waterman kind of took over the musical direction. I mean, he he totally got the whole five, six, seven, eight thing. And there had been another lineup before myself, Faye and Lee were in the band. So there mm -hmm. were, H and Lisa were always part of Steps. And there were three other people that had left and they'd already kind of done the rounds. So Simon Cow turned them down. Uh, quite a few other labels had said no. So when this lineup was put together, the only showcase audition I suppose we did was for Pete Waterman, Steve Jenkins um, and Tina Wisby, who were at Jive and Zomba. And Pete had like a licensed label through them. And we said, we didn't even sing. We mimed the song <laughs> in the, this big kind of recording, you know, a big a band type recording studio because it was a bit like a rehearsal room. And we all matched our coordinating outfits, all black and white, because that was something we all had. And we just went, did the dance routine that we had sp spent two weeks learning and perfecting before we got there. Someone put the track on, we mimed our way through it. And that was kind of it, really. It was Pete saw us and just got it right from the off. And and then I, I think it was after 5678 had been released. Nobody quite knew what was going to happen. And then he came up with Last Thing on My Mind and played us the Bananarama version. And we all went, oh, my God, no, that's so awful. <laughs> and um, thankfully they didn't listen to us. No, and put it out. And that must yeah. have been interesting for you as well as, as a kid growing up obsessed by Stock Aitken and Waterman and then there's what a one third of them um in charge of what you're doing I mean what 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 were your do you remember your memories of Pete and how he was and what was he like what, in the beginning when you, of when you, at the very beginning was, um, he, was he around was he in the studio much was he more just sort of overseeing everything yeah he was more overseeing it I remember when we went to do five six seven eight because obviously we signed a one single deal in the beginning mm. with options for two more singles and then one album mm. and and I remember recording five six seven eight and the producers that did it really were treating it like you know yeah. they didn't want to do it they didn't yeah. even put their names on it they they didn't want to be part of it. And they, I remember them saying to me when I left, like, if you, um, if you ever decide to leave and, and sing some real songs, then give us a call. <laughs> and then they were stuck working with us for four years or whatever it was after that. Um, but so it was very much treated like by them anyway, as you know, this is going to die and we'll never see them again. And Pete was always, he was always there. He was never not in the office. Mm. So he was always around and he was always around for a chat or, or for advice or, which I used to love. I used to kind of, if he came and sat and chatted to us, the stories that he would come out with are amazing. Yeah. And it's just, and it, for me, it was the best thing ever. And me and H especially, because that was our, that was our era. That's what we grew up. You know, I, I mentioned the time that we met Rick Astley it was, he'd come to see one of our producers because he knew him, he's friends with him. And we were like hitting each other. <laughs> Me and H going, oh my God, that's Rick Astley. And we ordered a Chinese and Sam had Chinese with Rick Astley. And it was just the, it was just the most surreal moment of my life. But I don't know, it just seemed a bit full circle somehow. 
It was yeah. it, the whole thing was quite quite bizarre. And I still I do think back to those days and think it just didn't really seem wasn't real. It's all which sometimes the past doesn't does it? It's no, you something just, you know's happened, but yeah, you're on the kind of journey and on the ride. But I mean, obviously yeah. they saw such a potential in the five of you that inspired the writers to go off and write things specifically for the band. Yeah. Um, do you remember the first time you heard whatever would have been, I guess, a demo of One for Sorrow? Um, I remember, so we were there doing the album and it was one of the last songs we recorded for the album. Mm. And I'd been there and I used to just go and sit and wait to be told that I was needed. Yeah. And because I still lived at home with my mum and dad, I didn't have a boyfriend or anything. So I had no reason to not be there. So I'd just sit and wait. Mm. And generally we would get given a tape and we'd have to go downstairs into the, not it wasn't even the bunker. It was just like a... It's a really odd room. There was a tape machine and you, I just have to sit, play the tape, rewind it, play it all manually. It wasn't quick. It was like, <laughs> yeah, and then play it again. Um, and I, re- I, I think they were still upstairs writing it while I was sat waiting pretty much all day. And then I was wow. given it, I think I learned it in about an hour, went upstairs and recorded it. I remember not getting home till like four o'clock that morning and my mum was going mental. She thought they were giving me drugs to keep me awake. <laughs> she actually rang the studio and just asked me what they were giving me to keep me awake. I was like, mum, I'm just working. <laughs> Absolutely not doing drugs to stay awake. And also that the, the Pete Waterman machine, whether it's with Mike and Matt or continuing on with you guys, it was a factory. It was known mm. as a factory. And you, they, you don't spend a huge amount of time recording an album. It's, I imagine, it's no. pretty quick. I think it was, I think we had like a two-week window where we were just recording and there really wasn't any other promo or anything going on at the time because we were constantly, constantly on doing some kind of promos. But five, six, seven, eight, I think if you actually looked back on the TVs that we did alone, you just wouldn't even be able to do that now. Because there isn't that many TV shows on the telly that no. could that that would have music anymore. So it's the amount of promotion that we did, and we were constantly doing. We used to go to nightclubs, and you know, at one o'clock in the morning, pitch up on the. Most of the time, it was just on the dance floor of, of a club because there was no stage, and with our backs to the audience, and then that fiddle would start, and we'd all be like, "Oh my god, these are like." All these people are all our age. They're in a club having a lovely time on a Saturday night and we are line dancing to them. Yeah. It was kind of, it was. <laughs> it's better than Burger King or whatever you said before. It's yeah. Like, and we it? would do, we would do five, six, seven, eight. And they would all kind of stand there and watch us. I mean, we, we got away quite lightly. You would think that we would have got a bit more abuse. And I don't know if I was just a bit more blinkered in those days, um, but we would do it and then get straight off and onto the next one. And we did that every, every week for months and months and months. So it was, you know, we worked hard for it. But the thing is, that was what promo, you know, pro, that's what promo was then. That was, mm. there was no Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. No. It was get out there and, and do yeah. the job, promote it. It was. And it would, it would be, 
you know, you'd get all these postcards printed up and give them to every single person in the queue mm. and every single person in the club just so they knew who you were, where the, mm. what the song was, where, 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 when it was available. It wasn't, there was no other, and even if something was in the newspaper, from the moment a photograph was taken, it would take a few days. It wasn't, it wasn't instant like it is now. No. It was, you know, someone would have to go and take their film and go and get it developed and then yeah. give it to somebody at the newspaper. And so it was, it was, it wasn't definitely not as instant. And it's a, a really good indication of as a, a pop star or becoming a pop star or part of the, a really big pop band that probably 3% of what you're going to be doing is singing mm. and the rest of it is everything else. Yeah. Absolutely. And you and you carve out a little niche of time. I mean, first album, tremendously successful. Do you remember, can you think back and remember your initial reaction to when someone suggests covering tragedy? <laughs> I, um, again, I think I was still very much in the mindset of if somebody higher up than me says we need to do this, then they we do it. They know what they're doing. Yeah. I'm going to do it. And initially, and actually, again, it's another full circle story, really, because so tragedy, the reason we recorded it, it was for a charity album. Um, so everybody on it covered a BG song in it. I think it was for yeah. a homeless charity. Yeah. And our, our now manager was the person that was putting together that album and suggested that we record tragedy. And he wanted us to record tragedy for that album. So Peter Lorraine, who is now our manager, was the basically the person responsible for us recording tragedy. <laughs> so it is a very much a yeah, full circle amazing. kind of story, really. And so from recording, it turned out so well that Pete went, and it was in the cycle of step one, the first album, but because that had already been recorded and and was out, we saved it and put it on Steptacular. So it's kind of, which is quite unusual, I think, back then. I think everything was so decided mm. that people just record singles now and eventually they go, oh, maybe we'll put it all on an album. But it was, it was never actually meant to be anything other than a charity record. And could you, when you were, I mean, it now is such a ridiculously iconic video, but I mean, at that point, I mean, could you have even imagined that, you know, all those years later, people are just going to be doing those hand movements? I know. And they do it to you in the street as well. It's kind of the only of thing. They, they never get it right, though. I think they get it mixed up with last thing on my mind. So rather than it's oh, it is a very similar. much a straight up, you know, it's based on, I think the idea... <laughs> The idea of it was, you know, the Home Alone movie, the picture of Macaulay Culkin, where he's like, I think he's got his, I think that's where the idea came from. Like, ah, it's a tragedy. <laughs> so, but then people add in the hair washing element of lasting on my mind and it just, and it, I have to correct people or I have to bite my tongue and say, which is the perfectionist side of me say, coming out. As we were saying about perfectionism. <laughs> It's like, yes, that's really nice you're doing that, but actually it's this. But I didn't know that about Home Alone. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it was Tim that, that thought of that because it was something else. I think it was like this to start off with, you know, like a hand to the She's, forehead. Hand to the forehead, yes. Yeah, like audio a, oh, only. oh, how awful. Yeah, I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can see me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
I think, and then the video, I mean, where I think the tragedy is obviously we're all getting married and the tragedy is we don't get married. Yes. But we, because it was a double A side with Heartbeat. So all the budget, all the video budget had gone on Heartbeat, which at the time was quite cutting edge with all the green screen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we were t- we thought it was. Yeah. It really doesn't look like it. So there was no money for tragedy. So we had this church, I think it was like in Hatch End or somewhere. And to be able to afford or to have a crowd and a congregation, it's all our friends and family. And not only did we not pay them, we didn't feed them. We didn't. (laughs) And they were there all day long. And at one point, like there's catering for us, as there is on a video shoot. Mm. And we're like, oh, is it all right if... um, if my mum or my sister gets, you know, something for, oh no, there's not enough for everybody. <laughs> so in the end, we said somebody to the off license to just buy them loads of beer. <laughs> and that was, that's it. It's like, come on, we're having it. And then it led to the party scene at the end, but they were literally there all day long, no food, no like water, nothing, and didn't get paid. But they're in one of the most iconic videos of, videos of all time. Of all time. <laughs> And one that got, you know, when you guys came back together and got recreated with its own wedding cake on stage. Yeah, and the so. wedding, my God, I've waited 20 years or whatever to get a wedding dress back on. <laughs> Just yeah. for that, I knew there'd be a reason. Yes. And the wedding dress that I actually wanted, because the one I had in that video, I absolutely hated. Okay. And I don't know why. I looked like a pixie. I hated it. I had short hair, had this weird little thing, in, and it was, it wasn't, a big frou-frou wedding dress. Lisa got the big frou-frou and I got a bias cut. Didn't even have a fish tail. I mean, that is, that is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. <laughs> it literally. So finally on that last tour, I was like, I want the biggest, biggest wedding skirt that you could possibly, I want all the chul, all yeah. the net and just hmm. make it as big as possible. I could hardly move, but I loved it. It was the best thing ever. Excellent. <laughs> So just to finish off with the the first incarnation of steps because there's been there's been a few but um mm. on the third record it went out a little bit away from the PWL stuff and uh, mm. you were working with other people including the incredible Jürgen Ellefsen on the way you make me feel was that mm. you going to Sweden or was that done here No we went to Sweden and we recorded right. so we recorded it's so you make me feel and here and now with Andreas Carlson. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to say at the time, you didn't get two bigger writers in the no. world right then. I no. mean, even now, I mean, Jürgen is one of my favourite writers of all time. He's an absolute genius. But um, that was a really big deal. How did that How did that differ from what you knew from just working with a PWL? I mean, it was a bit strange for us because we had everything that we'd recorded was at PWL up until that point. And even some of the songs that were on Buzz... I think it was Stomp. But by that point as well, Pete had moved out of his old building and into the new one. So that was a new studio set up for us. It was all new and quite different. Um, But then, yeah, going to to Sweden, and we went to America to record some tracks as well. I think because NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys and Britney were having so much success with that whole Swedish writing camp, that we felt like we needed to keep up with that and almost to, because everybody saw us as being so cheesy and and it was quite, 
it did used to hurt a little bit because <laughs> we worked so hard and everybody just saw us as this really not not very relevant and not very before anybody used the word relevant but not very um we were kind of a bit on the edges on the periphery of the really core successful pop music i suppose mm. well that's how we we felt because we weren't cool and i don't care about not being cool now because if you're cool then you go out of fashion eventually don't you so <laughs> that's why we never have because <laughs> we were never cool in the first place so going there it was exciting and it was very we only recorded two songs there so and they were in two different studios okay so it was quite and we were kept very separate still we we've never recorded people think we all go and stand around a mic and do it everyone sings together everyone sings together and but we don't so there was a lot more hanging out in hotels and stuff and 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 they they took it very seriously there was kind of no real we'd got to the point with the producers at pwl that there was banter and it was and we knew each other quite well and but there it was a very new everybody was on their best behavior and everybody i think that was one of the first times where i really felt an enormous pressure to deliver an amazing vocal and and maybe not feel as though I was as good as maybe I'd been told or maybe I'd felt that I was because it was a bit more of an international. We we had this kind of protective little world at PWL and I know everybody there kind of was quite... Um, I don't know what the word is. They 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 liked my voice and they wanted to work with it. So I I think I felt like when we went to different places, I was back on a even keel, I suppose, and it made me feel a bit of a a bit um, uneasy. I guess is the word. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And you talking about America there as well. I mean, <clears throat> the Steps tour was always a, a massive thing um mm. in the in the UK but that also was part of America with with the support for Britney Spears mm. which again so we, was was very different because you're going to a country where obviously here you're very loved but in America possibly not as well known no and nobody knew who we were <laughs> I still don't <laughs> um yeah that was the year before I think it's 99 we did that tour and yeah. it was we were signed to the same record label. We'd met her a couple of years before at the um, kind of Zomba conference that they had in Singapore before Hit Me Baby One More Time came out. And I don't, yeah, we were, the story is that she wanted us. I don't know whether that's true. I don't know how we ended up on that tour, but we didn't want to go. We, because even then we were quite aware of what, cost us money and what didn't cost us money so we they wanted us to reshoot the video for one for sorrow because it was going in a movie that Mm. britney had a song in so it was remixed by tony moran and we had to and we were like what's wrong with the first video why do we need to reshoot it and if we reshoot the video then why we have to pay for it and it was and and being on that tour we had to pay for everything so we really didn't want to go and we were persuaded to go and it was it was great it was fantastic it was some of the best times that we had since some of the 
funniest stories. I mean, generally watching an arena full of Americans stare open mouthed at the stage because they're not quite sure what the <laughs> hell's going on with these five people in bright yellow outfits. And I think I was wearing a cowboy hat as well at the time. I don't think they quite knew what was going on. And, um, and we were used to having our own, I think we'd done a theatre tour by then. So um, I always remember Britney's stage manager was this lady called Hillary, who was quite a tough and we had a very strict, I think it was no more than 20 minutes support slot every single night. But obviously, what you know what we like. We just, once we get on, we start going blah, 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 mm. H normally. And she threatened to just pull the plug on us in the end. She's like, you have only got this amount of time. And she would stand in the pit looking at her watch, like making sure that we were off on time. But then we were off. We were back in our tour bus by eight o'clock and onto the next place. It was great. And you've probably at that point really enjoyed it still at that point. I mean, it's a lot of hard work, but just enjoyed the touring stuff. And especially when you got back and you were doing your big tours, Yeah, you know, things like gold and stuff, which went on for, you know, sold out everywhere. And it's, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Touring where you finally have this really good back catalog and then working out how best to represent it. Um, yeah. And, and you always obviously want to just make it a massive party. Yeah. I think we always, we always really enjoyed that creative process of putting a show together. And we always had quite elaborate ideas. I think we still do, but again, it was always a budget issue. You know, the first meeting H would always walk in and go, right, I want to ride from the back of the arena to the yeah. stage on an elephant. I have to and say, he still does say that. Yes, he does. <laughs> We're going to have to do it one day. We'll do it one day. <laughs> one day, somehow, <laughs> to have a holographic elephant or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but we always manage to, I think the one good thing about us is our music, as much as if you actually listen to it, the lyrics and the the actual content of the songs, they're, they're quite sad, some of them. The lyrics are, they're all very melancholic and, sometimes bittersweet, I suppose, but the way they are produced and the way we present them is in such a way that kind of gives everybody a lift and it just makes everybody want to have a really good time. I mean, I did describe it as being punched in the face with pop music for two hours, which I like that. apparently was a bit violent. <laughs> no, but I think that's just, and we've spoken about this before, that's just classic disco, isn't it? The best yeah. disco songs of all time. A heart. I mean, you don't. I will survive. Mm. You know, yeah. I, this heartbreaking resilience, and that's what disco was. Yeah. Um, but because it's got a beat underneath it, you're just. It makes it even more. Yeah. Believable. And you've got five, you know, twenty-somethings smiling as wide as they yeah. can. It's yeah. kind of, you know, if we sold it, I don't think anybody quite realised what most of them were about. But underneath it all, if you peel back all those layers. They're good songs. You know, there is a song there. There's a structure and there is, which I think is something that a lot of people don't realise about Steps music. I think mm. everybody just thinks we're this throwaway cheesy pop group. And actually, if you do strip it back, there is a quite a few decent songs. Absolutely. So obviously that ride inevitably ends. And I think enough has been said about what happened afterwards. Mm. Um, but... I think in a way, 
it, you probably, I know you've spoken about this a bit before, but when it did all finish and you went off and did your other bits and pieces, after all that, you know, you were probably quite glad of a bit of a break because that's a big, intensive amount of work for mm. a, for a quiet for a, a t- in your twenties. You know, you didn't stop, and I think it's really important that people know. And I've said this before about um, people, especially you know, bands. Uh, the modern equivalent being someone like Little Mix of the fact that you do not like you know what you're doing this time mm. in nine months' time. Yeah, that you or are even in two years' time. In two years' sometime. time, and I think when people. As, um, we've spoken about this before to a few people with take, about Take That. And when you know at the age of 22 what you're doing in two years' time, that can be a lot. Yeah, it is. And I think, and I, looking back on it, I really believe that though, that kind of early 20s, what happens to you in that period of time is kind of what makes you an adult. I don't think you're quite an adult then, but it's what, makes you an adult in the future. And I, I feel like I was in a bubble from the age of probably 18 until 24 or something. I can't remember how old it was when we, 24. It's, I didn't grow up at all. I didn't have those because I wasn't living a normal life. I wasn't, I don't feel like I knew who I was. It took me a long time, probably after I had my children that I, kind of developed properly as I should have done in my early twenties. I kind of, I didn't know really how to do anything for myself. When we first split, it was great. I was kind of, you know, woke up the first day and it was, I was a bit devastated for a while and there was a bit of grief going on, even though a lot of people don't think we went through that as well, but it was, you know, we ended something that was enormous and I, it took me a couple of months to realize that, hold on a minute, I now don't know what I'm, what's going to happen tomorrow. And if I need to go somewhere, how am I going to get there? Or if it, it just, all of us, everything stopped and it was as instant as that. And then luckily we had the, we did have the H and Claire thing quite soon after. And we went mm. into presenting SMTV for about 10 months and it was at the end of that that I just, I think I just lost the plot a little bit. <laughs> I just absolutely went, you know, when our album went in at 50 something, I, I remember going, that's it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing anything else. Don't ask me to do anything else. And I cancelled everything. The only thing we did after that was um, we went to Euro Disney. That's not even called Euro Disney, is it? Disneyland Paris mm. um, to do sing beauty and the beast for their prince and princess ball and even that was a disaster so so i've never (laughs) done i'm not doing it ever again and i just hid for years and didn't do anything and i completely kind of just lost my appetite for anything to do with music at all which is kind of understandable as i say you'd and you'd almost kind of done a a 25 career year career it was almost kind Mm. of within about five years you just packed it all yeah. in i said this about billy eilish before when you watch the billy documentary and it's like she's literally done 20 years in a year yeah and it's um it, it, it's a lot so it's probably good to just get a bit of a rest and did you did you just <clears throat> stop singing even to yourself by that mm. point yeah i don't really remember even singing at home for a long time i just 
ate food. <laughs> I think that was why I went from that. Well, I went from not eating anything for five years to eating everything I could get my hands on and and not realising that actually what I'd been doing, because we were on the go constantly, I didn't associate the two things. But, I, yeah, I just didn't. I don't remember really even listening to music. Maybe I have when you still used to have MTV on in the background, but no, I don't, I just didn't do anything. And then when I did try to start singing again, it didn't feel like it was there. I thought I was convinced I had nodules on my vocal cords and, and I went and had cameras up my nose and all sorts to check it out. And it was, it was just allergies in the end and it was all fine. And, but I think that frightened me into thinking I'm I'm never going to be able to do it again made me, it reignited the spark a little bit, thinking that it was gone, that actually that's something that I still want to be doing. And what was the first thing back after the end of Steps and the end of H. Claire and everything? What was the first thing back for you actually singing? Um, I did one show... I can't remember what it was called, actually. I did one show. It was like an ITV special, and I went and sang Tragedy on my own. Oh. Um, it was after I'd lost weight, actually. So that that was one thing and I that I did. But then the real thing that got me really back into it was Pop Star to Pop Star. Yeah, which is an extraordinary achievement because, again, you talk about, you know, the girl that learned how to sing to Karen Carpenter. Mm. Um but then also you are a perfectionist and you do love to train. Mm. And I imagine just the idea of training to make your voice do that was quite exciting. It was. And it was because I did think I had these problems with my voice and I thought, OK, there's there's lots of plus size plus sides to doing this show. One is that to get the intensive training that I need to get me back up to what I need to be um it's trying something different it's singing again it's being on a primetime ITV show that and it I mean it did kind of all happen at the same time as the band was getting back together Mm. so it was and I was very aware that we were going on tour I knew that we were going on tour with Steps when I started doing that show but it really it was the first time that I trained my voice and realized what training and um, things like warming up and which I'd never really done before because it was just there. It was the first time that I'd really seen a difference in my voice. And I knew that if I worked hard on it, it would improve, which I didn't think was possible. And some of the things that we learned on that, even though it was operatic training, it was, it really opened my eyes to, to first of all, to what those kind of singers have to do to get themselves to the top of their game and what it can do for the likes of me as well. It was incredible. And it's, it is a, it's fun because people can, lots of people can do sort of what I call kind of cod opera, like, woo, like, you know, trying to do it, but actually to get it mm. right and to get it authentic and actually not only to get, to get it authentic enough to get it past that judging panel, mm. it, it, you couldn't like phone it in. It was. Oh my God. No. I mean, I've always been, I think throughout, I've always been, I've copied a lot. I think I try and copy things. So 
in my head, I was just copying an opera singer. So I think that's how I was getting through it. Mm. But I um, really, I remember when I was a kid, I went to see a singing teacher once who she was an operatic singing teacher and she kept telling, my mum had rung the Royal Academy or something when I was like 11 to see if they would take me. And they said she, I was too young. My vocal cords hadn't developed yet. And then I went, she's found me the singing teacher and she was a Swedish lady and she just wanted me to be an opera singer. And she said, you could do it. And I just I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to be a pop star. So I never went down that road. And even being on that show, they, you know, and they're the, some of the people on that show were, are the most successful opera singers in the world mm. told me that if I trained, I could be an opera singer, which is quite, and seeing how much they go through is quite a compliment to me. I was quite pleased with myself. I was going to say that and a compliment that you took. <clears throat> yeah. You're not, you're not well known for I mean, I probably made a face yeah. when they told me. <laughs> I probably pulled one of my... Oh, but but it did. But, but you didn't think I'm actually that. I do want to do that. And obviously, you were going actually about to go back into the whole steps comeback thing anyway. But did yeah. you? Were, were there things you learnt in that that you took with you onto back onto the tour? As oh, far as your voice, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the whole maintenance and looking after it. I mean, there. I, I have some of it is I think psychological now, but there are certain things I have to do before every show. Mm. I mean, I always have a little panic anyway, but if if one of those steps, pardon the pun, is missed out, then I am not in a good place by the time I'm having to get on stage. I have to do my warm-up at least twice. If I can do it three times, that's fine. I have to steam. I've got to have my hot drink thingy. I have to have my day of voice rest. It's it, If I don't do those things, I in my head, I think, it's not going to be there. It always is. It's never not been. But I don't know. I suppose it's a bit like a bit of an OCD thing. But it's, it's like it's, this is my process. And if I don't do that, then this is not going to happen at the end. But it's also training, isn't it? And I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have to look at it like it's it's a training thing, like someone warming up before they're going to do a marathon. It's, hmm. you know, really great singers, especially if they're on tour, then the maintenance is everything. And that includes all of the warm-ups, yeah. everything needs to take, and also, very sadly, not being able to go out every night after the show and go crazy because no. you've got to do it again. Yeah, if you're tired. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I did one show on the last tour with a hangover mm. and I will never, ever, ever, ever do it again. It was yeah. horrendous. And for somebody that panics that their voice is not going to be there for an entire two hours that you're on stage it, you know you add another element into that it's not great so I wouldn't yeah I would not recommend that to anybody and you know even things like not talking for a few hours before you go and say I never thought I would be that person but I am because it helps me yeah also you're a huge fan of hydration which I'm is one of my biggest things that I say to any singers mm. hydrate hydrate get yeah. that water in you have to, and actually, and something else I've learned is that, I mean, steaming's great because it, it goes straight to your vocal cords and that's how you instantly hydrate your vocal cords. Mm. But if you, if you don't drink any water for three days, 
and then you drink a bottle of water the day you're going to sing, mm. it doesn't automatically, it takes a while yeah. to get into your system. Yeah. Which, you know, people think I'm going to drink a glass of water. It's instantly going to hydrate you. It doesn't. So it's, um, yeah, it is important to, and I can notice the difference because yeah. I have got allergies. And if I don't drink water, this gets really bunged up. Mm. But when you drink loads of water, everything just flows nicely. Good advice. Really yes. good advice for any singers out there. Mm-hmm. Steps come back, uh, does everything that it's meant to do. It does an amazing tour. Um, it, it doesn't do the, doesn't turn into, you know, a new album or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's perfect for what it is. It's surrounded by a TV show. Yeah. Um, everyone is reminded of how brilliant the band are. Um, and sort of as soon as it's back, it's kind of gone again. Mm. Um, uh, I remember starting to get nearly possibly every year around December or January, an email from you saying, right, I'm ready. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a phrase that is stuck with us for quite a while. I'm ready. Oh, I'm, normally, not ready. I'm, I'm not ready. Um, which was basically, oh, I'm thinking about doing something solo. Oh, God, no. And then it would go away. And then the next year I'm ready. And then it, so. Or there the, would be some kind of harebrained theme around it. Like yeah. being the female Michael Bublé. Yeah. It's yeah. like, mm, you might be ready, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> there was, but yeah, but it was still, and there was nearly ready and then there was kind of ready and you were doing other bits and pieces and, you know, other stuff and bits of telly and all that kind of thing. But, um, but there was one year when you said, I'm ready. And it was like, I'm ready. Let's meet. Mm. So what changed? I don't know. You know, I think I'd been... I'd been doing nothing to do with music for such a long time. And I was gradually kind of finding myself on more and more ridiculous TV shows, which were great because yeah, of the, and the you'd experience. A book and you'd, yeah, you'd done, yeah, I'd done kind of all busy. that. And I knew that, I mean, we'd had a few years where we had the reunion with Steps and we had a few years where we were kind of in sticky contract situations, where, which meant we couldn't really do anything. So we had to wait um, to be able to move forward as a band because we knew we wanted to, weren't quite sure what we were going to do. But um, I don't know. I just think I'd, I just knew that I wanted to be singing again and was a bit fed up. I'm so fed up with people only wanting to talk to me about something that I'd done on the TV or my weight. And rather than, and I, it, one day it dawned on me, I said, actually, do you know what? I started in this business because I'm meant to be able to be sing, be singing or meant to be a good singer. And it, it just got me really thinking that I've wasted so much time and I must have been getting, creeping up on 40 as well. <laughs> I think that was probably, so if I don't do it now, I'm, I'm never actually going to do it. And I'd wanted to my whole career. You know, I had that choice in the beginning I was kind of offered a production. There was lots of these production kind of deals back in the 90s where people would take on a singer and kind of produce them and to, to hopefully get a deal. They wouldn't actually offer you a deal. And I was kind of offered a situation like that or steps and I went with the band, thankfully. So, yeah, I think it was partly my age and partly being fed up with talking about how much I weighed that week and and just remembering how much I love singing 
And also probably a little bit of singing along to Carrie Underwood every single day. Well, she does <laughs> like to do that. The, 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 <laughs> yes, your guardian angel of Carrie Underwood. Because actually the first, your first entry back into a studio and, and working on things which was made, which made as easy as possible, was almost had a little country thing yeah. to it. And I think it's really good that people kind of know that trying things is really important. Trying yeah. things when there's no pressure. Yeah, and that's. I think that was a, a little bit of the idea, wasn't it? I said, I think we should do country. And I mean, obviously, I'm not a country singer, and it's when it's when you're not from. No, but it, it's pop something. Country. It's, yeah, but but it's yeah. like what Ronan does. You know, it's yeah. it's pop country. And I and I think for me, it made sense because country music. There's normally a story. There is a song to emote. It's not. You know, you can put a bit of yourself into into songs like that, which you can't always necessarily do with a pop song. And so I think, and because I was getting older, it, I'm not going to be singing about going to a party or falling in love with someone for the first time because I've been there and I've done that. And I, it was more, it had to be a bit more mature. So I think that's why it made a bit more sense. But, and we tried songs that absolutely didn't work at all, even though on paper, I remember the was it Roots Before Branches that we did that I just oh, yes, couldn't Glee, just yeah. couldn't sing it. Yeah, I thought I'd be able to, but I just couldn't. <laughs> it was well, awful. I think, again, I think that's really important for people to know that you know there are going to be things that don't work. Mm. There are going to be things, and and just trying this, it doesn't. If if two people are in a room trying a song, it doesn't work. They're the only two people that are ever going to know. Yeah, yeah. So and it just means it's the wrong thing, and actually when it came to eventually your solo album, really nothing, well, pro well, barely, probably one song from that original session kind of ended up on it, but it didn't mm. matter because it all got to a point. And in fact, I think that song, which would probably be end before we start, was the one that made you go, ah, this is it. It's actually pop. Yeah. With a and it was actually, that was the song that made management say, yeah. go, yes, I can see it. I know exactly where you're going now. Yeah. And it, it was, it, that was the song that convinced them. I mean, I played it to our manager on an, on the plane on the way back from India. Yeah. I said, do you want to listen to this song? Yeah. And he, he was like, oh my God, why have you never played this before? So that's kind of where we're going. And it, that was when it all just fell into place and it happened, thank, thankfully. Absolutely. And I mean, I know there was a, the timeline will change here, but just, just staying on your solo career for a bit or just on the solo album, um, you ended up with an incredible collection of songs uh, for the My Wildest Dreams record, um, mm. which involved a, a mini tour. Yes, very um, mini. <laughs> <laughs> which, again, probably the equivalent of you when you were a kid hiding behind a curtain. Oh, my God, I wish I'd had a curtain. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. Maybe that should be my thing. You know, like Sia's got her fringe yeah i could just have a curtain or a sofa i'll yeah. sit behind a sofa so you can't see me because the <laughs> opening night of that tour was i i know you pretty well and um i don't think i've probably ever seen you as well actually i have actually there's a second second yeah, into this mm. <laughs> but um but actually it's a very different thing when you go back to not being in a five and just mm. being you and sometimes it's not even I don't think it's even about the singing. 
I think sometimes it's about the, what am I going to do in between the singing? Which I hadn't, I didn't think about at all. I just had in my head for so many years, I just want to do a solo record. I just want to stand still in front of a mic stand and sing songs. And I, I don't think I thought about everything else. And even on that first show, I mean, they were a great audience and it was a really lovely small venue in Glasgow. And I remember, fin- like, I think there was two songs back to back. Everybody stopped clapping and I would turn around to get a drink of water and it was just like dead silent. And I turned and I thought, oh, okay, they're waiting for me to talk because normally at that point, some we will prearrange whoever's going to speak. So, so I know when it's my turn to go and have a sip of water or, you know, or dab your face with a towel or whatever it is you're going to do, but it was all on me. And I don't, I, and they're my worst parts of a step show is when I have to talk to the audience, (laughs) because I mean, you'll probably always tell the difference when it's my turn to talk. I just go off on some strange tangent and everyone's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Because I never really I always end up with the links where I haven't actually got anything specific to say. So I just leave it to me to talk nonsense, to make sure everyone can have a drink. So, yeah, I don't actually think I thought about the side of the fact that I didn't have four other people to rely on to support, you know, as that support system that we all have. Mm. Um, and it was a bit of a shock to my system. <laughs> But it's a throw throw you in at the deep end thing and you just, yeah. there is no choice. You have to swim. Oh my God, yeah. And actually once I get going, I'm fine. Um, there are still moments where I, I think my brain, it's skipping forward a few things. Like, oh my God, I can't remember the words to that song and I'm not doing it for another four songs. So, that and that's always dangerous. Um but once I get going, I absolutely do enjoy it and I love it. And now that I've experienced that for the first time, I'm hoping that when I get to do it again, hopefully, that I will be better equipped to deal with it. Because the second time that those nerves kicked in, I found a lovely oh. quote from you. I don't know if it's true, but oh God. this quote says, it's really bizarre because honestly, if you'd seen me before, I wouldn't have blamed blamed anyone for putting a bet on me not even actually getting on the stage, which was you at Hyde Park supporting yeah. Celine Dion. Yeah, which I, is, th- I honestly think such a such a, a, a again circle. It's River Deep Mountain High gets you in the band. You're supporting yeah. your idol. Yeah, can't You're sing there. River Deep Mountain High. No, couldn't even sing it was River in Deep my Mountain. set. <laughs> God. So, and it was a it's a big show. It's fifty sixty thousand people. Yeah. Um, but it was massive. And I honestly do think if somebody had come to me an hour before, even just before and said, listen, it's not happening. You don't have to go on. It's all been canceled. I'd have been, I'd have said, oh my God, thank God for that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But, and I was, and it was, I wasn't pushed on the stage, but it was almost like I was pushed on the Mm. stage because the band, we were all standing there. The band were there. Then they all went on and they all started playing. And I knew that I have a certain um, amount of time before I have to walk out. And normally, whenever we opened our little shows with that song, I would always walk out and then just start singing. Hmm. 
and I was left at the side of my side of the stage on my own. I remember you said to me just before we'd got to that point, like, don't, don't walk out like you normally do, like come and be hyping the crowd. <laughs> and I, I, honestly, if you'd have filmed it, I think anybody must have thought I'm completely mental because I went from, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, to, oh, come on, Hyde Park. Yeah. And I literally skipped on the stage, was clapping. I mean, if nothing else, I can, I must have convinced that audience. And I think, and again, I remember I kind of peeped out and I thought, oh my God, there's no one there. Because that bit before the front, mm. right at the front, which is the diamond circle or mm. whatever, I thought, there's no one there. So I thought there was, didn't think there was many people. So again, in my head, I was like, Okay, well, it's fine. What am I worried about? There's hardly anybody there. And as I looked up, they, they were just, there was a, there were people there. Yeah, there was a scene. And, then, of and there. there were more people. Once they realised it had started, mm. it came. And by mm. the end of it, it was, and I'd offered, there was somebody else meant to be on after me and they pulled out at the last minute. And I went from a half an hour set to a 45 minute set because I went, it's okay, we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> like two days before. <laughs> So I had to, we added another like three or four songs into the set that we weren't going to do originally. Hmm. I mean, I'm in my head, all these things are great. And then when at the point of saying, yes, they're great. And then I kind of forget that you actually have to do it. <laughs> yeah. I equate that whole thing to a parachute jump. Oh, which because, I would never do. But it was the same reaction. As you say, if you could get out of it, you would, you had to be pushed on there. But yet you come off of it and literally it's again, again, again. And and almost if that had been the first thing you'd ever done as a solo thing, everything else would have been a breeze. Yeah. Yeah, it would. And I can't, I do get a little bit annoyed at myself because I feel like I didn't waste the experience, but I didn't embrace it and enjoy it as I should have done. I spent those hours leading up to me actually getting on stage were horrible like just and I was probably horrible to everybody around me as well it's like it was all right, don't it was, talk to me but it was mainly your family so that's yeah. fine my mum tried to give me a hug before I went before she kind of left my Winnebago thingy and I just I put my hands I was like mum please because <laughs> she started to go she's she kind of started to say that she was proud of me and tried to and I just thought no because hmm. I'm going to run and turn the other way. I was the same with Reese. He kept trying to put his arm around me. I was just, please just leave me alone. And I, I get really, I do get very irritable at those moments. And I do take it out on them, which is horrible. Because I'm not, I hope I'm not like that all the time. It's a, No, but it's a process. And it, and it really was a beautiful way to end a sort of campaign for that, that, that record. Hmm. Um, and it, I say timeline wise, it, it it came in the middle of the, the the kind of the steps come back. But um, mm. I think, you know, it's a record that you that you should be very proud of. Um, and it had a, a, you know, a huge fan base for it. Um, and you do have, you and, and the band have the most incredibly loyal fans. I mean. Oh, my God, yeah. They're just all, such a wonderful kind of bunch of people and, and so supportive. Yeah, it's amazing, really. And, and they are... That's exactly why we do it now. I think if we didn't have that core of loyal fans, which, you know, everybody does have, but I think maybe every artist thinks this about their fans. It feels different with us because we're not an act that I think is obviously, you know, when you have 
solo artists like Ed Sheeran and Adele. And, you know, that that is a kind of an obvious association because they are songwriters and they, you know, it's very organic and it's, they are, it's entirely them and their audience loves them for that. But with us, it's, yes, we're a manufactured band. We're probably a band that most people didn't think would last five minutes, let alone nearly 25 years. So it feels to me that it is different and they are loyal to, to, to a degree that I don't think a lot of people experience. I don't know if, if other people feel like that, but that's how I feel. And, and if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be making new music because there'd be no point. And they're still embracing it now. And the clever thing that the band and Fascination Management and as have done is with this this new version or the new incarnation, the sort of what you know, the from scared of the dark onwards, there was a mm. really smart thing to keep your sound the same, but change it so it feels new. Yeah. And I think that's what we were very aware of. When they first said to us about making new music, I'd we all reacted pretty much the same way. It's like, oh, really? You know, how how do you even do that? I think I I always felt that we were very specific to the time when we first came out. I think we it was it was a certain kind of pop music that doesn't really exist anymore. So in all of our heads, we were a bit kind of, well, how how's that even going to work? Because there's nothing else like that on the radio right now. And how so we took, I suppose we decided to take the elements of a step song, which is the melancholic lyrics and the big chorus and the, you know, me wailing over the end of something, kind of took those elements and put it into a slightly more modern production, I suppose, to make it sound newer. And it, and it, fit, it, it all fits together so well. I mean, which is mostly down to you, especially when we're on tour, because you make it all just flow together seamlessly. Well, yeah, but I it's mean, great. making but five, it... six, seven, eight fit with anything <laughs> is an achievement. That was in a itself. challenge. That was and a challenge. And made it different. You know, mm. no, no one had ever done that before, and you've got to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that, was, that one was a challenge. But I mean, how does it? You know, from the girl that used to put on, t- say, right, come on, everybody, I'm getting up on my table and I'm doing a show, Ugh. to standing on stage in front of 18,000 people screaming their heads off at you. Mm. That can you, can you take any of it in? Do you take any of it in? Or is it still the ego jacket is on when you're on the show and then it comes off the moment you leave? Yeah, I think... the. That's the one thing about steps is that, and I'm a very different performer when I'm doing step stuff and when I'm on my own. It's almost, Claire from Steps is a character now. It's almost like I I can do, it is helped in the fact that when I'm on stage with steps, I know that every single person in that audience has specifically bought a ticket to see us. So there's never an element of doubt in my mind that they don't know who we are or they don't know our songs. So that you get a certain amount of confidence from knowing that your audience is there specifically to see you. And Mm. that always gives me a boost. So I know that as long as I sing well and I don't mess up the dance routines too much. And even if I do, 
you kind of laugh it off and they they feel like they're part of it and they quite enjoy things like that whereas if anything had gone wrong back in the day it would just ruin everything whereas now it it's the audience love to see stuff like that it, it because they love the reality of what people are really like to a certain degree so but I still it's weird because I've done it for such a long time even though it was a big window of time that we didn't do anything it just feels normal everything else doesn't feel normal but that two hours being on stage with steps that is normal to me it doesn't feel surreal it doesn't if I think about it too much when I'm on stage, I would start crying. So I just have to lock yeah. everything away. Yeah. But um And it's a very technical show, your show as well. There's a lot yeah. to think about. It's not just singing. There's a lot yeah. of choreography, there's a lot of costume changes. It, it yeah. you have to be in the you can't like you've got to be in the moment with the whole thing. Yeah, you've got to be in the right place at the right time at all times. Yeah. Because if you miss Messing up dance routines is one thing, but missing cues and missing entrances and not getting your zip up on the back of your... Yep. The joy of quick change. Whatever. yeah. There's a whole other podcast. I'm hoping someone one day does a podcast just about quick changes. Yeah, oh my God. Because <laughs> there's a total art to it. Oh, there really is. And especially when you've got your in-ears in and yeah. what you can't hear you anything. You can't hear anything. And you're going, ah! shouting at the top of your voice, trying to get... And they can hear you quite clearly. <laughs> You can't even hear yourself. It's, There's, you've had a few of those. Yeah. So, so that <laughs> I mean, the whole that whole tour um, was was you know was huge. Um, the album then obviously leading on to what the future holds, uh, which of the which the tour should be happening later this year. Please God, yep, please. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and again, another superb selection of songs. Uh, and obviously part two is coming out very soon as well. But, mm. you know, Future Holds, again, the perfect comeback song. Just the perfect, you know, anthem, sounds fresh, sounds like what's out now, but still a banger. Yeah. And I think we were really lucky to get that. I mean, having a song written by Sia yeah. is pretty, you know, th there is a handful of artists that have had massive hits with a, a Sia written track. and. Yeah. And for her to actually suggest that we record it, it's quite a, you know, it's a very roundabout kind of way of getting it, but she recorded it and her, the demo is her singing it, mm. which is quite intimidating. But because her voice is very specific, it was quite easy for us to make it our own, I think. But you didn't do the thing that a lot of people do when they do a Sia song, they start doing a Sia impression. Yeah, which I think would have been really strange if we'd tried to do that. Mm. It would have, you know, there was a, there's a part on the demo where she really kind of loosely pronounces something. And, and one of, one of us did that on the record. And I, I was like, that sounds really weird because you just would never sing it like that. We mm. would never ever in a million years sing it like that. And it's very, obviously you've just copied the demo so it, so that it, they went back in and re-recorded it and it and made it sound how it is now because it was it was like it's a vowel sound normally. yeah it no it was like a th sound I think because okay. she sang I think she sang like widge yeah I think it was with you yeah and she sings she sings widger yeah and it's we would just never ever do that in no. a million years so to to have that on our record would have been odd yeah so um it was changed. <laughs> 
Excellent. And next year, you love a challenge going on tour with the mighty Jeff Wayne and the War <gasps> of the Worlds. Yeah. You're giving us your Beth. I'm my, my Beth, my best Beth. and my Beth. Your Beth, um, which means a little bit you can get the Julie Andrews back for a bit of yes. spoken, spoken stuff, bit of dialogue. Um, yeah, which is terrifying because I am not an actress at all. Well. I know there's an element. <laughs> I'm very dramatic. <laughs> Maybe that's all I need to be. <laughs> Just bring the drama on the well, stage. You did the audition. You've got the job. Jeff knows what he's doing, so it's going to yeah. be fantastic. It's yeah, but again, it's one of those situations where, when I said yes, it was a year, mm. to, and it's still not until next April. Mm. It's one of those that I said yes, and it's great. And even now in my head, it's great. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be brilliant. But come the day I have to go to rehearsals, I'm going to have a complete meltdown. <laughs> Yeah, but then again, that's part of your process. Yeah. Think, I'm going to be rubbish. I'm going to be rubbish. I'm going to be rubbish. Ah! Oh, that was all right. That's kind of, it wasn't as bad as I thought do you know it was what? going to be. That is such a, I mean, that even said, you know, a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome, but that last sentence you said is is pretty much, that's it really, in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's like, oh, okay, it was all right. It's okay. I'm not. But I survived. It, yeah, and you've survived a long time doing it, and you'll survive a long time, you know, from now on doing it. I just wonder, just to end with, I mean, what do you say to 13, 14 year old Claire Hill who's got frightened of beating, being beaten up because she sang at assembly? What advice do you give her? Um, oh my God. Don't take any notice of that lot, and um, it'll be all right in the end. I think, yeah. I think um, it's really hard to, maybe, maybe I would say, don't worry so much. I think I just worry too much about everything. And I still do. Sometimes I don't. And the times that I don't worry, it's a bit unnerving. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but maybe I should have got myself out of that habit a bit earlier on and I would just be a breeze now. And the times that you do worry, there's always pom-poms. Exactly. I've always got a bag of wool. <laughs> I carry a bag of wool and a pom-pom maker with me pretty much everywhere I go. And sometimes I don't need them. And that's great. But when I do need them, they are there. So if you see me making pom-poms, you know why. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much for chatting this afternoon. Thank and, you for having um, me. Good luck with, with, with everyone. Well, look, I'm going to see you soon anyway. So. I was going to say good luck <laughs> to you. Because you're going to need it as well. It was one of the biggest privileges of my life when I got asked to take over working as an MD for your band, because I love your band. You know I love oh. your band. I'm a huge fan, and I was from the very beginning. So um, it was quite daunting, but uh, uh, I saw someone post the other day, I think, um, the version of Tragedy that we did for the last tour. Yeah. And um, just, you know, they were saying, and I just said, look, it... it there was no way I wasn't like the moment that someone gives me tragedy, there's no way I wasn't going to throw the kitchen sink showroom at it. And um, search the internet for the perfect bells. For, yeah, exactly. The perfect the moment, church bells. The moment Frank Strachan says we're starting it with the, with the wedding march, then it was, it was, it was doomed. Uh, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was doomed only, to perfection. <laughs> so doomed just to kind of go totally nuts. But no, I do love your band. I do love everybody in it. And it's such a strong bunch of people you've got incredible management and um yeah 
long may long may they reign well that's and handy may, because well, you and there's no escaping for you I now know. you're stuck with us forever. Back in it. bring yeah. it back i can't wait for that first night and that audience bring them on oh, it's going to be amazing Fantastic. i can't wait to see what you come up with okay cool all right uh steps tickets are on sale now go get them come see them and uh, i'll see you soon i'll see you soon <laughs>